Is it on? Oh, there it is. Hello. Hi, I'm Becca. If you don't know me, I have been back here for about four years. Um, I worked with the recently graduated senior girls class, and now I am with freshman girls. So that's been really fun. Had a lot of fun getting to know all of you guys. Um, if you haven't figured it out already, all of us leaders over the summer are um, taking time to tell our life story and our testimony. Um, so I'm just going to share a little bit with you today about my life. And I'm clicking my own slides, and hopefully this works, because technology has not been my friend the last 24 hours. There it is. Okay. Um, the first few slides are just pictures. This is my family. I threw some of these great 80s photos in here because Brittany Bench insists that I wasn't born in the 80s, but here's the proof. You can tell by my mom's hair in that upper right corner and my dad's sweater, I was born in the 80s. So I'm <laughs> um, I have a few fifth generation pictures in the other corners. Um, I was really privileged to know really well three of my great-grandparents. Um, my last great-grandmother passed away only about four years ago, so I knew them really well, and that was kind of a cool thing. In the center is a picture of my family. Um, my husband and I have been married for 14 years, and we have three beautiful daughters named Michaela, Olivia, and Bettina. I didn't realize until about a year after my youngest was born that their initials spelled mob, and they live up to that like every day, and they embrace it, and they are chaotic, but really fun and really sweet. And then in the far corner um, is a picture of my entire family from last weekend at my sister and brother-in-law's anniversary party. So that's a really recent picture of all of us with all of our kids and all of our craziness. Uh, the next slide are me and my siblings. I was an army brat, so these are like my only like lifelong friends because we moved every about three to four years. Um, me and my little sister in the top corner, we um, had been grounded and we made a really horrible dinner for my parents to spend our time. The other one shows the other top corner. Um, we love to perform, and we performed a lot of skits and plays and horrific dances for my parents throughout the years. Um, my baby brother, I have, there are three of us sisters, and then my baby brother was born, and so he just kind of got the brunt of everything. So in that picture, we were doing the nativity, and we had shoved my brother into two chairs because he had to be baby Jesus. And then the picture in the bottom is about 15 years later when my husband, my brother, my mom, and I went with a group to Israel. Um, our tour guide called my brother Little Jesus because of his long wavy hair, and that's a picture of him walking on the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> there are rocks like right under the water, but I thought it was a cool picture. So we have the baby Jesus and then our walking on Galilee picture. And then the other corner is from my brother's high school graduation about nine years ago, and it's just my favorite sibling picture of us. And I am very pregnant in that picture, so. Um, one of the last things, these are just some things that I love. I was a huge um, music person in high school. Um, that top, the top, uh, what side is that for you? Left corner. It, so I know some of you know Shelly Dennis. Um, <laughs> so Shelly Dennis was my choir director. I was a um, charter member of the UMHB Conservatory Choirs, and so Shelly worked at the conservatory for a while. And if you know Shelly, you probably know Dickens on the Strand. Yeah? So that's where we were. That was my senior year. Um, I love musical theater. I did an Oliver production at UMHB and Annie Get Your Gun at a local community theater in Kansas. I'm a harpist, the far bottom corner. I actually, that was a harp I got to play in Jerusalem. Um, that was just kind of a cool story. Cool thing that happened. The lady had really bad arthritis and her fingers are hurting. I'm like, well, can I play your harp? And she was like, sure. So I made her some money and it was just a downtown Jerusalem. I got to play harp and I felt like I was the winner in that that scenario. Like, she got some money, but I got to play a harp in Jerusalem, so um, I kind of play the piano. I'm not great. Um, and then 
the one of me is in a like the oldest adult picture. I'm holding a book that's I'm actually a writer. So and that's my that was my debut novel. Um, so very artsy fartsy. My mom tried really hard as we were growing up. She homeschooled us. Um, she tried really hard to raise really sensible, down-to-earth children, and that didn't stick with me. Very artsy-fartsy. I love artistic things, and I don't like sticking to, like, household tasks. I, I just don't. My husband gets to come home quite frequently, and the house is a mess, but I've started some great new project that's going to be fantastic. So just a little bit about me. Um, we, yeah, so I'm an Army brat, and um, my dad was... Um, he was a doctor in the Army. He joined the Army to pay for medical school because they got married young, and his parents said, we're not paying for your college if you get married young. And he said, fine, I'll get a scholarship. And he joined the Army and got a scholarship that paid for everything. Um, but I was the only one of my siblings born in a civilian hospital. So I was alive through all of medical school, all of my dad's residency, and all of my siblings were born during medical school and residency. So the brunt of the young child years with me and my siblings fell to my mom. Um, just because at that point, residents didn't have a set number of hours they could work every week, so they just worked all the time. Um, so she had that brunt of raising us. Um, after my dad's residency, we moved to Kansas, um, and that's where God really began telling my story. I, like you can see from my book, I love stories, and God really started writing a story in my life. Um, I think every leader has gotten up, and Dave asked us to do three-word testimony. So my first word of my three-word testimony... I think I might have deleted it. Or, oh, no, I didn't. Never mind. This is a scripture I kind of based this off of. And that's, um, for the no I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Um, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me And when you seek me with all your heart. That's in Jeremiah. And probably kind of on my mind because graduations have just taken place the last couple of weeks. So this is a really, I think, popular graduation verse. You know, we have good birds in here like prosper and hope and future and what God's going to do in our lives. But if you actually go to the, the verses in Jeremiah and you look at this, this is written by the prophet Jeremiah in the context of the, Israel, the Israelites being in exile in Babylon. So there are not good things going on. Like God's promising good things, but the, the Israelites are not in Israel. They're not in the promised land. They're not, they don't have the things that God had promised because they were faithless. They continue time and time again to disobey God. Um, and so kind of what I want to bring out in this, I had a great childhood. Nothing majorly terrible happened in my childhood, but I still had conflict. And all of us are going to have conflict and trials in our lives. Um, but that doesn't negate God's promises. And oftentimes I found throughout my life, and what I'm going to point at today, is that in, it's in the midst of those conflicts and those trials that God is teaching us something to help us move forward in our life. Um, and he's shown me that very evidently in cert, a few certain times in my life. Um, so my first word, now I'm getting back on track, is guilt. Um, we moved to Kansas. We lived in this great neighborhood on posts that the houses were in a U-shape. In the middle of the U-shape of houses was this huge courtyard it had a playground, and we had a basketball court, and we had a sidewalk that went all the way around. It was great for riding bikes. And we had this huge field across the street that was like an abandoned golf course. It had trees and long grass, and we'd just go play for hours. And there were lots of kids in the neighborhood, and it was just really fun. But within a couple of months of us moving into our housing, 
one of the kids um, acted inappropriately towards me, and it just made me feel really gross and guilty. And I talked to my mom about it and, you know, prayed about it and, you know, worked through all of that. But this started this kind of cycle in my life of everything that I did, every sin I committed just made me feel this overbearing sense of guilt. And that went on for a month or so. And I went to my mom again. I said, Mom, I just feel so guilty, you know, when I I disobey you or when I am mean to my siblings or just whatever sins. I have always kind of struggled with um, swearing. Um, So the words would pop into my head, and I just feel this overbearing sense of guilt because of it. And my mom was really kind, and I'm paraphrasing this because I'm sure she didn't say this to me when I was, like, this way when I was seven. But the gist of it was the Holy Spirit convicts us so that we ask for forgiveness and so that we, um, we repent, and then God forgives us. And he doesn't hold our sins against us. So when I keep feeling this guilt over and over and over again, Satan is heaping that guilt on me. That's how he tries to keep us in his clutches, that he wants us to just continuously be guilty for how we have sinned. And so that, like, like switched this light bulb on. I'm like, oh, like, it helped me to realize that I was broken even at seven. And it helped me to realize that I needed a savior. So in November of that same year, I accepted Christ as my savior and I was baptized, and I, you know, received his forgiveness, and I've been living in that and striving to live in that grace every day ever since. This time period also started a lifelong obsession for me with C.S. Lewis, specifically the Chronicles of Narnia. They're my favorite books. I have, (laughs) yes. I think at this point in my life, I've read the entire series through at least five times, and probably more than that on different books. The book that particularly was helpful to me during this time of my life was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because there's, it, you, you're introduced to the character of Aslan, and in my seven-year-old mind, that character so helped me to begin to um, kind of start to understand Jesus. The phrase that kind of gets put in the, throughout the entire series is he's not a tame lion, but he's good. And I kind of, I began to equate that with Jesus, that he doesn't promise us safety, and he doesn't promise us the absence of conflict, but he gives us good promises that he's going to give us hope and a future, and he's going to bring us through those conflicts. Um, You know, he didn't, I, let's see, I think I have another verse here. Yeah. Um, So at the end of the Great Commission, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend back to heaven, and he's talking to his disciples and reminding them of all of he's taught them, and telling them what he wants them to go and do now. Um, Very last verse in Matthew, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. Jesus doesn't promise us safety, but he promises to be with us. He didn't tell his disciples in the Great Commission that they were going to walk into the temple and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were going to be, oh yeah, you're right, Jesus was the Messiah, and let us give you a whole bunch of money to go on your way and continue preaching he kind of laid out for them in his time with them that it was going to be the opposite, that they were going to be persecuted, that they were going to be beaten, that they were going to face trials and hardships for the gospel. Um, And he says the same thing to us. Like, he doesn't promise us that we're not going to have conflict, but he promises that he's with us through all of it. Um, Another verse that I kind of landed in for this time in my life is from Romans, and that's, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Those conflicts can. We get a choice in the middle of those conflicts if we're going to accept what God's trying to teach us and kind of and just give it to him. Give him the conflict. Give him what we're going through. Or we can accept, uh, or we can choose to not. And I've had time in, in my life where I've wanted to choose not, but God, Jesus was always faithful in all of that. And that kind of helped me to work through that guilt and to understand his grace um, and what he was beginning to do in my life. Um, that started my journey with Christ. I was seven. Um, and I was from a great Christian family. We were the family that was at the church every time the doors were open. Um, and we read the Bible as a family every night together and prayed together every night. And every morning I'd wake up and my mom would usually be in her rocking chair, drinking her tea, either reading her Bible or praying. And, um, both of my parents just modeled, you know, godly disciplines really well to us in our childhood. So that being said, I kind of skirted actually taking a lot of the responsibility for my Christian growth. Like I just didn't necessarily have to do it. I wasn't completely stagnant in my faith because what my parents were doing, but I um, wasn't really pursuing like reading the word. And I'd say my prayers at night, but that was kind of it. Um, But then, you know, in that few years, this was when I was in high school, eight years later, um, we had moved to Texas. I had made lots of friends. Like I said, I was in high school, and there's this boy that I liked. And then the Army said, okay, you guys are going to Fort Ryan, Leavenworth, Kansas, which wasn't even the Kansas post I had been to before. It was a completely new one. I didn't know anybody. I was going into my sophomore year of high school, and I was really mad because my mom had this conviction that kids, even though it was only 10 months, and we could have stayed in Texas because my dad already had orders to come back to Fort Hood, my mom had this really strong conviction that kids needed their dads. And I think particularly at this time with um, her daughter who had an almost boyfriend, that she didn't want to do that on her own, um, especially the first time around. And she packed, made us pack up all of our worldly, worldly goods, and we moved to Kansas for 10 months. And being the great, submissive, wonderful, not sarcastic daughter that I was, I decided this is stupid. I'm not making friends for 10 months because what's the point of that? I'm just going to read my Bible in a year, and that's my goal, and that's all I'm going to do, and that's all I'm going to focus on. And God took that, and despite my really crappy attitude, um, I did. I started reading my Bible, and that was a Holy Spirit thing because I'm not, you can ask my husband, I'm not a stick-to-it kind of person. I have a lot of unfinished projects laying around the house. So the fact that I actually started reading my Bible for a year and have been doing it fairly consistently ever since is a testament to what the Holy Spirit does in our lives and how he begins to work. But he was doing that for another reason. It wasn't just so that I read my Bible, but he was kind of preparing me for some trials that my family was going to face and some conflict we were going to face. Um, Shortly after moving, um, my dad's in school. We're getting into the fall. My mom's on her way to Bible study on the Post Chapel, and she gives me a phone call, and being the great homeschool kids that we were, we were still in our pajamas. I think my brother was watching cartoons. We were, you know, eating breakfast, really not doing much that day. But I get this kind of frantic phone call from my mom, and my mom is not a frantic person, and she told me to turn on the news because a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. And I was like, well, what's the World Trade Center? Okay, you know, what are you freaking out about? So I go and I turn on the news, and, you know, within, a, I think, a couple of minutes, it's all kind of a blur, we watch the second plane fly around the buildings and crash into the second tower. 
and we're glued to the TV for a long time after that, and we watched, you know, on live TV, the buildings come crashing down, and, you know, we didn't know anybody there, but the reality, the, the reality that my dad already, the Army never cuts orders early. Like, he, they never do this. So the fact that we knew my dad was coming back to Fort Hood and that he was going to be the division surgeon with the 4th Infantry Division and that the division surgeon or the 4th Infantry Division was the most modernized, battle-ready division in the military at that time kind of hit us like a ton of bricks. And for the next year and a half, our new normal became, oh, dad's going to war. Um, and in movies, they make it really dramatic. Like, you know, you kind of like cry all the time or like you have these deep conversations about life after death. And we didn't have any of that. You know, we knew that when my dad went, that we, no matter what happened when he was there, we would see him again. But I mean, it just became our new normal. It just hung over our heads. The other kind of random creepy thing is that when we walked out our front door at this house in Kansas, we could see the federal penitentiary where the 1993 World Trade Center bomber was being held, and that was just kind of creepy and all mixed together. Um, the rest of the year, actually, or the 10 months, went really quickly, and nothing else major happened. We moved back to Texas. My dad got signed, with, or you know, was a division surgeon at Fort Hood with the 4ID. We, so we were waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen. Um, but within a couple of months of moving back, I reconnected with that boy I liked, and we started dating. Um, our first date, I think, was um, at this weird movie called Tuck Everlasting. I don't know if any of you have seen it? It's <laughs> the, the only thing. So I wanted to see it, and he told me, yeah, sure, I want to go see that movie too. And then later he was like, I didn't even know what it was. I just wanted to like, go hang out with you. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's nice. The only thing I remember about that movie is that the male lead's name was Jess. And I remember thinking, why can't Chad have a cool name like Jess? That's such a cool name. Not one, like, it was just a random thought that, you know, filled my head. I think it had a lot to do that I was a huge Gilmore Girls fan. And I thought, <laughs> and Jess is Rory Gilmore's best boyfriend. Like, that's just, that's just how it is. So, random thought, but hold on to it, because it comes into play later in the story, because God has a weird way of taking really random things and turning them, putting them all together. Fast forward a few more months, and in February of 2013, and I think I missed a whole bunch of slides, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, growth. Hey, this is all growth. Here we go. Uh, the middle picture was the end of our time in Kansas. The middle top one, um, we were pinning on my dad's rank. He was being promoted to lieutenant colonel before we came back to Texas. Um, so in 2013, started the period of my life that I fondly remember and call hurry up and wait, which is army. Like, it went kind of like this. Our friends would have to clear out their barracks, and they, so they would come and stay in our guest room at my family's house for a day or two. Um, and we would get, you know, home-cooked meals and just have some family time before they left. And inevitably, they'd start packing up their duffel bags, and they would get a phone call. Or they knew that we were leaving in two days, so they'd start packing. Then they'd get a phone call saying, um, no, we're leaving in two weeks. Slow down. You're fine. And an hour later, they'd get another phone call going, no, you're leaving in two hours. Get your duffel bag. Get to the gym now. And then eventually, they'd get another phone call. No, it's three days. You're fine. And that was a huge period of our lives for a long time um, because they never set exact times that any of our friends would be leaving. And so the most memorable was one Sunday morning. We had a friend leaving at 6 o'clock in the morning. We got a call around midnight, 1 o'clock, saying, I'm at the gym. We're leaving in an hour. And so we got dressed, drove to the gym, 
sat with him for about 30 minutes, and then went to Waffle House and Colleen and had breakfast after he left, and then went to church and pushed chairs together and fell asleep at like 6 o'clock in the morning until people started showing up for church. Um, Huge period of my life. Uh, My dad left and deployed in April of 2003. Um, In that bottom middle picture, that was his Humvee, and you can kind of see his driver in the background. He, um, He convoyed a lot. He convoyed three to four times a week, which is really dangerous because his enemy was different than a lot of enemies that we, our military had faced in the past, and that there wasn't necessarily open warfare as much as there were bombs stuffed into debris and animal carcasses on the sides of roads that would um, cause a lot of fatalities and and injuries. Um, So it was kind of scary, but he was good. He told us, you know, we knew before he left, we'd see him one way or another. So Um, in the top right corner was also in Iraq, just pictures of them. I don't know what they were doing. And then, um, so a lot of months of my life. During that next year, while my dad was gone, um, you know, my, my relationship with my boyfriend began to progress. We were in love. I loved him dearly. I think he loved me. I don't know. Um, but what I didn't realize is that in, during that time, I started making an idol out of my relationship and out of him. And that I was, began at some point, I'm not sure, I was still reading my Bible. I was still going to church. I was still praying at night. I was doing all the right things. But I began to um, put all of my hopes and my dreams, you know, we were talking about getting married, we were talking about all these things. Um, I put my hopes and my dreams and my faith in him. And my mom began to see that that was really unhealthy. And um, my mom has this great habit of praying these awesome prayers that get answered really quickly. And some of the leaders I think know, probably some of you students, my mom prays this prayer that we'd be a family after God's own heart. And every time she prays that prayer, something bad happens. And we have like this, Mom, stop praying that prayer. Just don't do it. And she still does sometimes. If something bad happens, I'll call her and be like, Mom, did you pray that prayer again? Sometimes she'll say yes, and sometimes, no, I'm not praying that prayer. Um, But with this idolizing of my boyfriend and of my relationship, she prayed another prayer. And she prayed that if he, God, if he was not, if this boy was not to be in my life, that God would just take him away, clean cut. When I found that out a couple of months later, I was furious because when he broke up with me by saying, let's take a break, I was devastated. Like we all are when our idols get knocked down Um, and just completely heartbroken. But God used that time, like the hours that I spent talking on the phone to him, God, the Holy Spirit, this is again, not me because I don't stick to things very well on my own. God began to use that time that I used to spend on the phone, and I began to pray. And I was praying about everything. I was praying about for me. I was praying for Chad. I was praying for my family. I was praying a lot more like I should have been doing for my friends and my dad overseas. Um, and just telling him about everything. And my re- prayer life became like I was talking to a friend instead of just, you know, a bedtime prayer or a dinner prayer. And God didn't let me wallow. I did wallow in my sorrow for about a month. I cried myself to sleep every night. My mom's like, that's enough. This has to stop. This is ridiculous. And so you don't, we didn't disobey my mom. She would tell us I'll win the battle, and she always did. So I stopped it. um, But it still hurt. But in all of this, God was already working out another part of my story. Because if we back up to when we first moved to Texas, we were going to a small church in Copper's Cove where... um, And my parents began to mentor a young couple named Darren and Michelle Mast. 
And Darren, actually, in that, the top left corner, he has the gray shirt and the black hair. Um, and all those guys next to him, in the next few years, as my parents mentored them, they started bringing these other guys. We have Seth in the brown, Xavier up top, Carl, cool Carl in the light blue on the side, and then Rudy in the black shirt in the front. Um, started bringing all these guys to church. And Rudy, who is like my big brother, or was like my big brother, um, he, long story short, they all deployed. Rudy came back, got out of the Army, moved to Minnesota, joined a National Guard unit in Minnesota, a medevac National Guard unit, full-time. And within a month or two of joining that unit, they were um, called up to come back to Fort Hood to backfill opera- or medevac operations for the rest of my buddies in that picture. So within just a like, six months, I think, time period, Rudy was back in Texas. Well, he brought this group of young adults with him who I became friends with. And what I didn't know at the beginning of this is that big brother Rudy was playing matchmaker, and he was, there was a young man in his unit who had grown up in a Christian home, had kind of did his own thing after high school, and then was ready to kind of like settle down and start his life and told Rudy, I'm just looking for a really a nice Christian girl to, um, to um, settle down with. And so Rudy began this plan of matchmaking, and... In May of the year that my dad was deployed, Jess asked me out on a date. Um, (laughs) And I remembered that first date with the other boyfriend. And three months later, you know, we began praying together every night, either if he was at my house for dinner or we would call if we didn't see each other that day and we'd pray. And we began our relationship on this foot of Jesus as the center. Three months later, we were engaged. And a year later, we were married. And we've been married for 14 years now. And it's been great. Um, He really modeled Christ to me. He loved me in my brokenness because I wasn't completely done healing over my breakup. But it was really good. Um, And that brings me, I just have a couple minutes left. There are some pictures of us in our adventures. I love the one, the top corner, because he had to stop one of our daughters from running out of the street while carrying, like, a huge bag of American Girl items. He's a dad of girls, and it it was, like, the perfect moment. Um... My last one is faith, and I'm just going to touch on this real quick. Um, Despite all the lessons God had taught me up to this point, you know, my need for a Savior, my brokenness and need for a Savior, reading my Bible, now I'm in this conversation. Prayer is a conversation with my friend, not just a habit and a duty that I have to perform. Um, But then, and I thought I knew what faith was, but on May 13th, 2016, at 1047 God started a journey of really teaching me what faith was. And that's because my mom called me at 10.47 p.m. and said that my 17-year-old cousin, Marcus, um, had been shot. And we found out over the course of the next 24 hours that the fatal wound had been self-inflicted. And my identity as a, you know, fourth-generation believer kind of came crashing down around my ears. And the faith that I thought I had, the things that I thought... The faith I thought that I had, I didn't have the feelings anymore. Like how, I thought, how can, how can God be good and allow this to happen to our Christian family? And is he even there? Like, does he even hear me? But he made his presence so clearly known throughout this time. He, um, a couple of things. One of the things I didn't know, it wasn't in our budget for me to fly out for my cousin's funeral. And the day before we bought plane tickets, I went to my mailbox, and we had three unexpected checks that we had no idea were coming. 
and it, the total added up to what I needed for my hotel, my airline ticket, and my food while I was there. God just made his presence known. Um, I came back from California. Um, he actually, while we were in California, I went into a bookshop, a tiny little bookshop called The Book Nook, and I meant to bring the book because I walked into this bookshop. I was just, you know, it was terrible. Like, it was a horrible time in my life. But the whole back wall, there's a shelf full of C.S. Lewis books, which, I mean, I love C.S. Lewis. That guy speaks to me. One of the books I picked up was A Grief Observed, and the first line was, nobody ever told me that grief felt so like fear. And he went on to describe exactly what I was feeling. So I picked that up. You know, God's making his presence known even in that, that C.S. Lewis, my all-time favorite author, The Chronicles of Narnia, like he's speaking to me through this book. I come back from the funeral, and the very next day, Dave is preaching. I can't remember if it was back here, if he was preaching the main service, but his sermon was honest doubt. And all these doubts had started to flood my mind. And I joking like, okay, God, I hear you. I know you're speaking to me. But I continued to deal with the doubts over that summer. And it came to the point where I was one conversation away from telling Dave, I can't be in the outback anymore. I don't even know what I believe. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what, how to handle this. But God continuously, as I prayed, even though my prayers were really angry and bitter, like immediately I would hurl an accusation at God, and he would come back at me immediately with a scripture that refuted what I had just said for about three months. Or a friend would text me with something, that, some accusation that I had hurled at God. You know, we followed you, we love you, and I know that in my head I know that we're not good and we don't deserve his love but that he loves us anyway, but in my, I wasn't feeling it. And the lesson that came out of this is that faith isn't a feeling. There was nothing in me at that point in my life that I could muster up the feelings to believe in God. And I learned that the faith that I have is because of the Holy Spirit that God has put in my heart. That God, and I began, after about four months, I just began to pray, God, I don't have the faith here. I need you to have the faith for me. I need the Holy Spirit to work in me and have this faith for me because I don't have the faith in myself. And I began to heal. And it was just so cool because as I look back on that point, as I look back, you know, several months later, I realized how all of those lessons in my life, my brokenness in my childhood that showed me that I needed a Savior and that Jesus loved me no matter what. And then when he led me to start reading my Bible— so that when those doubts and when, those when I hurled those accusations at God, that the, he, the Holy Spirit recalled those scriptures to my mind to refute what I was saying. And then with prayer, because even though my prayers were angry and bitter and full of grief, by the grace of God, I continued to pray. And I continued, like, the Holy Spirit continued that conversation with me, even though I didn't necessarily feel that I wanted to continue the conversation. Um, so that's a little bit of my testimony. I think I'm pretty over on time. Here's some pictures. I have my picture of my cousin Marcus in that bottom corner. Um, his brother and I, the night before his funeral, we decided to recreate a childhood photo. <laughs> so I was holding my like six foot four, 200 pound cousin in my lap. Um, then I showed the picture of Rudy again because we lost him to suicide this last September as well. Um, let's see. So, just to end up, um, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. His promises are good. Our lives aren't always good. We have trials and we have conflict that don't, that we don't always feel 
the faith. We don't always want to pray. We don't always want to read. But God is always good, and his promises are always, his promises are good, and he fulfills his promises. Just going back to that verse in Jeremiah one last time to wrap up here. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. you have some questions at your table? Thanks, guys.